Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. I'm delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Harn here. Uh, it's, it's never easy in a, in a full-day conference to be the, the final speaker, and I can't think of anyone who would be better at doing that. Um, Dr. Harn is the president of Northeast Catholic College, um, in New Hampshire, uh, an absolutely beautiful location in the, the mountains, everything you would picture of New Hampshire, especially you get out there in the fall, which I love to do. And one of these institutions that embodies everything that we're talking about, and so uh, his, his talk will sort of wrap up everything that we're talking about, in particular talking about the culture uh, at a Catholic college um, and how important that is, not just in the classroom, but throughout everything that the Catholic College does. Um, Dr. Harn joined the, joined the faculty of Northeast Catholic College in 2008, first as a tutor, then as dean in 2009, and then as president in 2011. Uh, and I was observed all his uh, heroic efforts uh, as president out there. You know, every one of these institutions relies very heavily on enrollment. Um, everyone that was here today. And so the, what the presidents put into their institutions is absolutely uh, inspirational. Um, he's taught courses in Latin and music at the college as well as courses in the philosophy and humanities sequence. He earned his graduate degrees in music history and liberal studies from St. John's College in Annapolis, the University of Washington, and his PhD at uh, Princeton University. His scholarly interests include the intersection of musical and philosophical thought in the Middle Ages, 20th century music, and music in antiquity. He's published scholarly articles on medieval music and popular essays on Catholic education, most recently, Finding God on the Quad, Benedict XVI's vision for Catholic education in the National Catholic Register. Uh, George and his wife, Debbie, uh, are converts. They both entered the Catholic Church on the Feast of Christ the King in 2006. Uh, and he's told his story on EWTN's The Journey Home. Uh, they've been blessed with five, children's, four, five children, four daughters and one son. And uh, in addition to being the primary educators of their children, uh, Debbie serves with the college as well uh, as the choir director and hosts in their home regular gatherings of the Sodality of Mary and the Confraternity of St. Joseph. So, Dr. Han, Harn. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. I'd like to begin by thanking the Cardinal Newman Society and the Institute for Catholic Culture for inviting me. I was looking forward to doing this this time last year before Snowzilla came, and I'm so, I'm very happy that we were able to, to do it again, to try again. Um, one of the first things I learned um, about Catholic education as I was looking toward the Catholic Church um, from a very secular environment where I had been formed was the crisis that it was in um, in the early 2000s. And so I was delighted even before I entered the church to, to learn about the Carl Newman Society and the work that you were doing. And um, it helped me really orient myself 
within Catholic higher education. Um, as I was thinking about entering the church and thinking about you know, what will happen to my own children if we become Catholic, will there be places for them to go? And um, it was a delight. I remember handing out copies of the, the Newman Guide even before I was Catholic <laughs> to families within my parish that I was getting ready to go into. I said, you gotta look here, look, look at this. So um, I'm very grateful and um, I'm also grateful to be part of this again. I, I had the chance to speak at the Institute for Catholic Culture a few years ago on music and enjoyed that very much. And um, uh, I guess it went pretty well because they invited me back. So I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful for that. Um, so, uh, and um, I'm very happy about uh, Deacon Sabatino and now Father Hezekiah. Um, and I would just affirm what he said about, about Patrick and his work in Catholic education. Let's begin with a um, exercise in hope and the imagination. Imagine recent graduates of Catholic colleges and universities. Um, they've graduated and they've now entered the workforce. What does this look like? Let's imagine this. I believe they would be working at the highest level of excellence in whatever field they're in. Lawyers, doctors, priests, religious teachers, um, artists, musicians. Um, the, the highest level of quality in the work they're doing. They're also bringing a level of integrity and focus, ethical integrity and an orientation toward the things that are most important and that is good. And those things are all going to integrate into the way they carry out their professional lives. Now imagine these same graduates in the parish, teaching CCD, uh, singing in the choir, assisting um, father in the parish, doing what they can to make sure that the liturgies are beautiful and reverent, and that the entire life of the parish is oriented toward communion in the sacraments. Now imagine these graduates in the home, you know, living out their, their faith in the family, faithful spouses, open to life, teaching their children by word and example, drawing their children and other members of their family into closer communion within the family, but also to Christ. What type of Catholic colleges and universities will form these graduates? I think it's important to know what we want to achieve what do we want to get at the end of this process and then work back from there? What, what do these vibrant Catholic young people look like who come out of the colleges that we, we hope to create and renew? Um, I think we have some ideas about what the problems are, but I think it's important to know what we hope to achieve. So um, I'd like to, to really begin with a, a story that I, I read a few years ago um, in a book by Matthew Kelly that I think captures um, the essence of what I'm gonna say today. There was a corporate CEO, he was very successful. Um, his company had a, a long track record of success, but they, had, they, had, they were struggling in the, in the economy. He had to give an address that night at a, at a banquet, and had to, it was the day of the banquet and he hadn't finished his, his address. And his wife had to go out for the day and left his seven-year-old son there for the father to watch while he was working on his speech. Well, if anyone has ever tried that, it doesn't usually work <laughs> that well. Um, and so uh, uh, the boy kept interrupting and, and there were lots of things that he needed. And, and so finally the, the father knew something had to be done or he would never finish his speech. So he picked up a magazine, he thumbed through it and he found a brightly colored map of the world. And he pulled it out and he tore it up into dozens of pieces and he scattered it on the floor. And he said, all right, if you can put this together, I'll give you $20. And the boy has no idea what the map of the world looks like but he does know what $20 means. Um, and so he goes right, right to it. So the father thinks I've bought myself some time and he gets up and he walks and he goes into, back to his study thinking, okay, I can finish. Not much time has gone by. He hears a knock at the door and he opens the door um, and there's his son with the map. He says, how did you do this? How did you do this so fast? 
He said, well, as I was picking up the pieces, um, trying to put them together, I don't really know what the, 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 the world, map of the world should look like, but I noticed on the back, there's a, an image of a man. And I, I figured, I'll, I'll use that. So I put all the pieces together to make the, make the image, and then I flipped it over, and then I got this map. And I, I figured, if I get the man right, the world will be right. And I think this is the core. If we can get the man right, if we can get what it means to be human right, our Catholic colleges and universities will be right. So I'm going to start today with the human person. We're going to go from culture, and then we're going to talk about the promise of Catholic higher education. The question is, what type of colleges and universities will produce the kind of graduates I just mentioned? Maybe you can come up with even more vibrant images in your own mind of what you would hope to achieve. But let's keep that in mind and know that we have to get the human person right. All right, so we're going to talk about four basic things today when we talk about the human person. And more could be said, right? Um, we are created. We are created for wonder and with a desire to know. Right? That's the first section. We are created to worship. We're created for virtuous communion and love, and we're created for the creation of culture. And I would put sport, by the way, within culture. Right? I just wanna, I'd like to see this as, a, as an extension of what Dr. Theofelder has already said. So these are the four areas we're going to focus on. All right? So this, in, in some ways, the first part is the least controversial. We're created, created for wonder and with a desire to know. If I were to tell, uh, you tell your typical high school senior, guess what, you're going to go to college, and you're going to have to study and learn. Big surprise, right? So, I mean, that, that's what we all expect. That's normal for a, a Catholic, for a college or university. We expect that to happen. But I want to say something deeper and broader and I think more significant. Um, I think we have a crisis in many ways. Um, we've forgotten a number of things about education. We've forgotten that we learn because we are created and ordered for truth. We're not just ordered for facts or opinions or other people's viewpoints but we're created for truth, the reality, the, the, the truth of things as they really are. There's a definition of wisdom that says, seeing things as they really are and acting accordingly. Okay? Seeing things as they really are and acting accordingly. That's what it means to live life in a wide, with wisdom. But sometimes it's hard to see things as they really are because there's so many opinions and ideologies swirling around us. We've forgotten that, that we can, we can know the truth and we're ordered for that. That this knowledge should be an integrated whole with a proper balance and proportion. Uh, Cardinal Newman talks about this in his idea of a university, the idea that all the disciplines have to be ordered and, and in proportion. And theology, as the queen of the disciplines, has to hold everything in the right position. If you pull theology out, other things go into its place. Suddenly sociology becomes the explanatory science, the, the key to all of reality, or psychology, or chemistry, or some other science comes in. So it's important to keep them in proportion. So we can know the truth. This truth should be integrated with a proper balance and proportion. Um, and this knowledge should be ordered by a knowledge of God and transcendent reality. As Dr. Theofelder said and others have said, in, in many ways a Catholic education is much broader than the education you're going to get in another institution. So th these things are really important. So where do we begin? At the very core of this anthropology I want to propose to you today is this basic fact. All men by nature desire to know. Um, now, We've all been around small children who say, why, 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 all right. Um, that, that's a natural thing. No one had to teach them to keep asking why. It's part, of, part of, of who they are. Now, we eventually curb that enthusiasm. We eventually get them to, to not be quite so inquisitive. But that, that desire to know is, is fundamentally ingrained in what it means to be human. 
Now, what are we trying to know? St. Thomas says, the study of philosophy, and by this I mean, and he means, I think, a broad desire to know the truth. The study of philosophy does not mean to learn what others have thought, but to learn what is the truth of things. Again, we're not just wanting to learn mindless information. We want to know reality, and it's wired into who we are. Again, I was, uh, Dr. Theofelder prepared here. He already mentioned Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. I'm going to extend it to include Cicero and Plotinus. All right? So these, these philosophers, and, most of human, and throughout most of human history, philosophers agreed that in addition to desiring to know the truth, we also desire to know ourselves. That in order to be truly happy, in order to truly achieve human excellence, we have to have self-understanding. But there's more to this. As Catholics, we know there's more. There's, there's a key here. The truth is, according to Gaudium et Spes, that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. So only in the mystery of God, only in God and by knowing God can we know ourselves. Christ fully reveals man to man himself and makes his supreme calling clear. So we're, we're wired for knowing the truth of reality. We want to know ourselves, but paradoxically we can't know ourselves unless God reveals us to ourselves. So these are the young people who are coming to our colleges and universities. They have this desire to know. They want to know reality. They want to know who they are. That's why they put posters on their wall and do other things, because they're trying to sort of figure out who am I and, and express themselves. Um, they're, trying to, they're on this quest for self-knowledge, but they, they'll never find out unless they first know God. But most Catholics who come to college lack a strong understanding of Christ and his church, and the church is teaching about what it means to be human. Thus, while it may not have been the case in the past, most students who come to Catholic colleges and universities um, have these enormous gaps. And it's our job as faithful Catholic colleges and universities to fill in those gaps. But what does it mean to teach the faith to young people, to teach, it to ca teach them to Catholic young people? So, Cardinal Dulles had this to say, education in the Catholic faith takes place on three levels, primary evangelization, catechesis, and theology. <laughs> Presupposing that the student has become a believer through evangelization and has learned the principal teachings of the church through catechesis, theology engages in a systematic search for deeper understanding. So again, this quest for knowledge, for truth, knowing reality, and self-knowledge takes us eventually to knowledge of the faith. But there are three ways, there are three steps. When you've been properly catechized and studied theology, what do you want to be able to do? John Paul II says this, Cardinal Dulce was quoting, Universities must strive to provide students with a clear, solid, and organic knowledge of Catholic doctrine, with a focus on knowing how to distinguish those affirmations that must be upheld from those open to free discussion and those that cannot be accepted. So again, we have these, this, these three levels. We've got evangelization, we've got catechesis, and then we've got academic theology. And we want them to be able to know, after catechesis and theology, what they can affirm and what they cannot. So the first key to this Catholic anthropology is that we must learn, that we learn because we are created in order for truth, not just the acquisition of facts and to acquire knowledge for careers. And that this, there's, a, there's a hidden problem behind this first one, which is that our culture doesn't believe you can know the truth. <laughs> they believe that it's your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And there's a, there's a profound skepticism and, um, that permeates our reality. So one of the most refreshing and radical things that happens to students when they go to a real Catholic college or university is they meet professors who believe you can know the truth. I mean, this may, it may sound like I'm making this up, but it, it's really, it, it's so prevalent. It's like the air 
that we're breathing uh, on most colleges and universities, uh, on most campuses. Um, so the fact that we believe this, first bullet point, first bullet point that's, a, that's a heresy for most academics. Second, that this knowledge that we obtain should in, be integrated into a whole with proper balance and proportion. Most professors devote their lives, decades, to a very specialized focus. And that works when you're making cars. A narrow focus, you become more efficient. But it's a recipe for absolute disaster in education. And then you should integrate knowledge of God and transcendent reality. That's where our purpose comes from. So, if we want to get the man right, if we want to get the core right from which we're going to orient our, our institutions and renew them or found them, we have to understand that we are made for wonder and a desire to know the truth. And that includes all of these, all of these aspects. We're also created for worship. If we don't worship God or right, we're going to worship something else. And it may not look like worship, but that's really what's happening. We're going to worship the environment. We're going to worship our ethnic identity. We're going to worship our political or economic ideology. We're going to worship our grievances. We're going to worship some, whatever's fashionable that week. Authentic Catholic colleges and universities must not only provide mass somewhere at some point on campus during the day, they must build a culture that is oriented fundamentally to worship. Um, the kind of culture that you come into, and if you're not, even if you're not seeking to practice your faith, you find yourself almost, without thinking about it, being drawn toward worship in some form or another. That's what, that's what we're talking about. That kind of fundamental orientation. So, how can you build this culture? Well, here's some basic ideas. Um, so, uh, and some of these are things we do at the college. Some things, these are some of the things that we learn from other institutions. First of all, the, the president, the provost, the dean, anyone who stands up to address the students at any point during the academic year can express at the right time, at the right place, and in the right way a, a desire, an institutional wish that all of the students at the college come to mass, that they participate in the Catholic spiritual life of the college. They can use their bully pulpit. Um, academic deans have no problem standing up talking about um, academic honesty or you know, against plagiarism or whatever, whatever the issue might be or applying for graduate school. What happens when the academic dean invites the student population to consider going to daily mass? It changes the culture of the college and it sends a very clear message that this is a different kind of institution. Um, and so this is, this is one, of the, one of the ways to create a culture oriented to worship. They can also bring speakers to campus who do the same thing. You can use your social media and other kinds of media. So um, at our college when we um, have special feast days, um, we put it on Facebook. We'll find a great piece of art of a particular saint, post it on Facebook, and we'll wish everyone in the community you know, happy feast of St. Paul or St. Thomas. Um, and you're just, you're just gently, subtly affirming this orientation toward the liturgical year through your media. Um, you can have chapels in your residences where the Blessed Sacrament is reserved. Um, and the students can gather and pray um, alone, you know, silently, or you can pray in the evening, you can pray Compline together. Catholic members of the faculty and administration, even before they are hired, um, but especially after they're hired, can be encouraged to participate in the sacraments on campus. Um, not requiring them to go to daily mass, but you can let them know that you're encouraged to do this. You can let them know that if you get up and walk across campus to go to mass at 1120, you're not being derelict in your duty. You're actually affirming the mission of the college by going to daily mass. It's good to do that, and you're setting a good example for the students. So again, you're creating a culture where this is, sacramental life is normative. It's the, it's the, way, um, the way it can be done. Um, another thing a, a school can do is it can allow the liturgical year to be the basis of the academic year and the student life calendar. 
So uh, at our school, we close our offices on feast days. The staff love that. <laughs> um, um, and we cancel classes. And, but that doesn't mean everybody just sleeps in and stays in the room all day. We actually have activities that run throughout the day to honor the feast. This actually comes from the Middle Ages. This was common in the, in the medieval universities. They would have an alternative schedule for high feast days. So we have a special meal. Of course, we'll have a, a liturgy on campus. Um, uh, we'll have maybe a film to show this related to the feast day. There are all sorts of things you can do um, to celebrate um, the liturgical year. I think the key part here is, though, is to allow what's happening in the chapel to flow from the chapel into the culture of the college in a natural way, in a natural way. That doesn't mean everything you do on campus has been sprinkled with holy water, <laughs> okay? I'm not saying that. Um, I mean, we have, we, have, we have some club sports um, on campus and we have lots of dances. Swing dancing is a big thing at our campus. We don't try to squeeze, shoehorn everything into a, a particular saint's feast day, but it's there and it's underneath and it, and, it, and it bubbles up at the right time and in the right way. So, here are some of the ways we do this at, at, um, at Northeast Catholic College. We have daily, we have daily mass um, and mass on the weekends. Um, our bishop has allowed us to use our altar rails, which has been very uh, helpful in sort of reinstituting reverence uh, in daily liturgies. Um, our servers, uh, our priest has done a great job organizing our servers and building up a spree de corps. So much so that our bishop, this is, the, this is not our chapel by the way, I wish it were. Um, this is the, uh, it's our new chapel. Um, this is the cathedral uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, it was recently restored. It's, 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 it's amazing what they did in restoring it um, after the recovation of the, um, of the 70s. Um, but the, the bishop loves to invite our servers down to serve at the Red Mass um, and other big events because they're reverent. They take it seriously, um, and he loves to celebrate Mass at our campus um, because of the beauty and the reverence that's there. Did I say recovation? Okay, did that come out of my mouth? Sorry. Um, um, so before it became popular and controversial, um, our priests started celebrating Mass facing east. And when the bishop comes to our, our chapel, he celebrates facing east. We have photographic evidence of this. <laughs> so, um, and, um, so, but it's wonderful. It was weird the first couple of times. You're like, why, you know, what's going on? But then you, you, you just realize, oh, that's right. Yeah, he's, we're, 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 you know, first of all, you look at how, how beautiful, oh, look at that chasuble. It's really beautiful, you know. And then you just pray. And, um, and so it really has changed. Again, sort of like the altar rails, it has allowed an, another level of reverence. Because again, it's not about just having mass on campus. It's about having deep, beautiful, a kind of gravitational pull of reverence toward worship on the campus. And these liturgical things will really do that. They, they will really, in, in quiet, indirect ways, make this, make this possible. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, Father Zacharias isn't here. Um, that's a Melkite liturgy happening at the bottom there. Um, the, uh, in addition to celebrating Mass in the Novus Ordo, Father celebrates Mass once a week in the Tridentine form, a low Mass, and then on certain high feast days, we'll do a high sung Tridentine Mass. Again, it's an educational institution, so it exposes our students to this form of the liturgy. Um, I think it's all, all souls up there. Um, and we, it's, uh, it's just an amazing liturgy. So we do that, and then once a semester, we have a Melkite liturgy on campus. So this, this introduces the students to other forms of Catholic worship. Um, and then we try to make uh, liturgies as beautiful musically as possible. Um, all of our students sing in the choir at some point, and they learn to sing Gregorian chant, they sing polyphony um, in English, um, English chant, Latin chant, as well as polyphony. Um, and uh, that's my wife up there directing the choir. 
I miss her a lot. I've been on the road for four days. <laughs> so, um, and then down here on the bottom, these are not old chant books. The one on the left is the Parish Book of Chant, and the one on the right is called the Proper the Mass. The Proper the Mass was published two years ago. These are new resources for, for music, beautiful chant music in English for the liturgy. These are new things that are happening. And our students are graduating with these and taking them back into their parishes and using them in their choirs to renew the liturgy there. I think everyone who is affiliated with the Institute for Catholic Culture understands the importance of liturgy. So I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, as I mentioned, the liturgical year is another way to really orient your culture toward worship because we're made for worship. So here's, and again, I'm trying to be concrete and give you specific examples of how this can work. All right, I could, I could be abstract and quote, you know, papal documents, but I'm not going to. We're going to give you examples here. Um, so around the Feast of St. Nicholas, we have a, a um, celebration. It's the Lessons and Carols, um, and it's open to the public, and we have benediction at the end. Um, and then afterwards, uh, we have this, this huge feast. The, the tables are creaking with food, Christmas food. It's delicious. And then, of course, St. Nicholas appears and gives presents to the little kids. Um, we did have an institute in the St. Nicholas training, though, I should tell you. Not every 18-year-old male understands how to play Santa Claus. Okay, it's just not, you know, you ask, them their, you ask them their name, what they want for Christmas, and have they been good. I mean, those are the three basics. And you think that's obvious, but it's not. Um, so this year, we actually had a St. Nicholas um, orientation. Because I think, um, because the, two years ago, his beard was falling off. It was really pathetic. Um, but, um, but, you know, it's, it, we're an educational institution, so we're constantly teaching. Um, um, so about five years ago, um, some of the men decided to tie together some, some logs and make a cross, throw it in the back of a, a pickup truck, drive to the bottom of the hill, because we're at the base of a mountain, and on Good Friday at noon, to carry it up. And so th there's the young man carrying it, we're all praying the rosary at the same time, and you trade off after every decade. And except for the praying of the rosary, it's completely silent. Again, this came from the students. This is how culture is created. If you've had a bad Lent, you haven't really given much thought, it just kind of went by you in a blur, this will focus <laughs> um, and prepare you for, for Easter. It really will. Um, in fact, that, that cross has had, to, there's now another version of this because it, it, it got so, the water, the rain, it, um, it, it became virtually very light. So I'm worried about this year because we have a new one and it's going to be heavy, I'm afraid. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful experience. But this is, this is how culture is created and how worship flows into the creation of culture. And then Good Friday. So we have Holy Week. Um, the Holy Week services are, are a big deal on campus. Um, we have spring break earlier in the year, so the students go home for spring break. But then they're on campus, almost all of them, for, for Holy Week. And um, we'll talk more about this in a minute. Um, And personal devotions. So we have a May crowning every year on campus, the procession. And then usually one of the daughters of one of the professors is the one that gets to, to crown Mary. It's a very beautiful um, uh, devotion. We sing while we're doing it, usually after one of the daily masses. Um, we encourage uh, Marian consecration. Father Michael Gately has been to campus and spoken. Um, and this is a very popular um, thing among our students. Um, we also have daily rosary in the chapel, um, but then we also, the students will also pray rosary, the rosary uh, I mean the, in the side chapels. This is from the, the women's residence, um, St. Mary's. Um, we also uh, have morning and evening prayer on campus and sung Compline. Compline. Um, we started teaching the students to sing Compline in music class a few years ago, um, and the students decided they wanted to do it in the residences at, at night. Truth be told, I hoped that was going to happen, and it did. Um, so every night at 10 o'clock in St. Joseph's, the men's residence, they gathered together to sing Compline in English. 
using one of these new books that's been published in the last few years. Um, and in St. Mary's, it's 10.05. I'm not sure why, but um, roughly around 10 o'clock. Um, and that's the Compline book. Um, and that's the composer who made it. Um, we have Eucharistic Adoration, of course. And then last year, we had, um, as a convert, I, I had not heard of this, the 40 Hours Devotion. Those of you who uh, know more about the um, practices of the church um, devotionally. And so um, one of our students organized it. And um, began with a Mass on Friday, ended with a Mass on Saturday. There was a Mass, I mean, Sunday rather, there was a Mass on Saturday morning. There was a procession on campus. Um, and um, that's my son on the far right holding the thurible. He's very proud of to be able to. It's the only place he can hold things that are on fire. Um, it's, it's, um, um, and, uh, but again, this, this was a student-initiated idea. And the student came and talked to the chaplain, then talked to the choir director, and then put this together. So when I talk about us being wired for worship, I think the fact that so many of the things I described to you here, have, they've emerged from within the students. I think it just confirms how, how deeply rooted that is. And students are going to respond to these opportunities. Again, we're not talking about mass somewhere on the edge of campus that you know, happens, you know, but nobody really ever talks about. We're talking about a culture that's oriented um, toward worship. So man was created to know, and, uh, to know reality as a whole, to know reality that includes God, um, and transcendent reality, and we were made for worship. A third key is we were made to be in communion, virtuous communion in love. Not superficial friendship, not isolated American individualism, um, but in deep, deep communion. Um, I came across something, I was helping a student prepare for one of her comprehensive exams, and um, I read an essay by David Schindler, um, and I, this image is just amazing, and I'll share it with you. Um, he says the communion and community begins in the Trinity itself that the procession of the second member of the Trinity actually is the beginning, the, the relationship between the Father and the Son, which then the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's, there's a community there at a very fundamental level. When we become Catholics and we're baptized into this life, we enter into that communion. As we grow in holiness, as we grow in prayer, we go deeper and deeper into this communion. And that's what the call to holiness is. Um, it's actually going into deeper communion and having greater int intimacy with God. But then, as we go deeper into this, we bring others with us almost without thinking about it. Almost naturally we bring others. That's called evangelization. And so at the very core of our lives as, as Catholics is this communion. Um, and it explains the call to holiness, it explains um, evangelization, it explains all of this. But we were made for this. And there's a lot of theology about this, and we're not gonna go into that today. But we desire this at our deepest level. And Catholic colleges and universities that respond to this need are going to be successful if they provide opportunities for this deep and fundamental communion. You remember, um, I mentioned when we were talking about Cardinal Dulles, um, those, those three levels of evangelization, catechesis, and then theology, that the first one was evangelization. I, I, would, I would say today that if, if we forget about that first step of evangelization, then we're not going to be successful in our attempts to carry out our mission. Um, it's important, and it's so important to hire theologians who will teach the Catholic Church's teaching faithfully but we also need, in our plan for our institutions, a plan of how are these young people going to hear the call, the call to, to take up their own personal cross and to follow Christ as disciples. 
Now, I'm not trying to smuggle in some sort of Protestant Jesus and me theology. Now, I am a convert, so I'm always, there's always a little suspicion that I might do that. But I'm not doing that, okay? And I have, I've got it on good, good opinion. In fact, um, uh, this person actually said something about this. Um, uh, so I think I can, don't, don't listen to me, listen to him. Um, to all of you, I say, bear witness to hope. Nourish your witness with prayer. Account for the hope that characterizes your lives by living the truth which you propose to your students. Help them to know and love the one you have encountered, whose goodness and truth and goodness you have experienced with joy. With St. Augustine, let us say, we who speak and you who listen acknowledge ourselves as fellow disciples of a single teacher. Help them to know and love the one you have encountered. Know and love. There's an effective dimension here. And notice that he's talking, he's assuming that the people who are doing this themselves know and love God. He's assuming that they know. How many, how many of the faculty and staff, if you were to look at all the Catholic colleges and universities across the country, how many of the faculty and staff that, that make up those institutions are prepared to help their students to know and love God? How many of them have encountered, have had that encounter? This is what we, what I as a college president, our faculty, what we're all called to do, and then we're called to share that with, with our students. But again, what does it mean? Faith is above all a personal intimate encounter with Jesus and to experience his closeness, his friendship, his love. Only in this way does one learn to know him evermore and to love and follow him evermore. At the first step, we have to find a way to get the heretical theology professors out of our Catholic college institutions. We've got to find a way to, to give them early retirement. Then we've got to hire good ones. But then we have to think about campus ministry. We have to think about the, how the whole institution helps our students come to this kind of faith. So, um, I would encourage, this is, so I think this is, this is essential. Um, so much could be said, a whole presentation, a whole series of presentations could be given on how to help our Catholic young people hear this call to discipleship. Um, I would recommend, if you haven't read it, that you uh, take a look at this book, Forming Intentional Disciples by Sherry Waddell. The first few chapters are profoundly dispiriting because she uses all the sociological evidence to show that the Catholic Church is hemorrhaging young people. That all of our young people are leaving, okay? But after she gets through laying that out, <laughs> she draws up a, a blueprint which has been tested and proven to, to, to be successful on how to, to regain them and how to call young people back. So it's called Forming Intentional Disciples, um, and it's built around this, this statement by John Paul II um, that I think we should consider. And by the way, since this is being recorded, this will um, all be, um, be available. These titles and things will be available online. Um, but one of the things she takes very seriously is this statement by John Paul II. This is a document on catechesis, so he's talking about how it should be done. He says, this catechetical model must allow for the fact that the initial evangelization has often not taken place. A certain number of children baptized in infancy come for catechesis in the parish without receiving any, further, any other initiation into the faith and still, and this is, I think, critical, without, receiving, without any explicit personal attachment to Jesus Christ. They only have the capacity to believe placed within them by the baptism and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We've, we've all seen this at First Communion. All these children show up. We, we haven't been there since they were baptized. And this is, the, this is the situation he's talking about. And many of these children will go on to Catholic colleges and universities. But how are we going to call them at that point? How are we going to help them make that, make that turn in their lives toward Christ? 
And so I think that book by Sherry Waddell outlines some very good ideas about, about how to do that. But this is part of the crisis that's, that's beneath what's going on. So um, I would keep in mind these, these three steps, evangelization, catechesis, and academic theology. A lot of what passes for evangelization is in fact catechesis. Um, and as important as that is, we have to remember to look at the whole person. It's not enough just to give people the true teaching of the church to give them the true, the true knowledge. We've also got to speak to their hearts, we have to speak to their wills, and we have to look at them, again, as a, full, as a full person. A lot of hard work has gone into getting good theology courses, getting rid of comparative religion courses out of these colleges and universities, getting actual courses that teach the church's teaching. That's an incredibly important step, but we can't stop there. We've got to also press on and make sure that we have ways to, to call our students to discipleship. All right, so we're called to know in a deep, integrated, holistic way that includes the realities of the spiritual and transcendent dimension. We're called for worship, deep, beautiful, reverent worship. Um, and we're called for personal communion. Um, and our fourth, we're called for the creation of culture. I noticed there's a CD in your, in your um, folder that has, uh, it's got uh, Leisure the Basis of Culture is the name. And you'll see, the, you'll see a photo of, that, of the author here in a minute, uh, who wrote the famous book, Leisure the Basis of Culture. His name is Joseph Pieper, and some of his ideas are the basis of this. Um, we are created not only to inhabit culture, and as with most of our young people, to consume culture, but to create culture. Uh, what, did, what did God charge Adam and Eve to do? To be in the garden and to till it, right? So this idea, of that, that's what I'm talking about, that cultivation um, of that initial relationship between Adam and Eve before the fall and God, that's part of who we are, and that's how we're hardwired. But what are cultures? What is culture? Cultures may be said to exist for the sake of passing on, from one generation to the next, a vision of life well lived, a set of loyalties, a body of wisdom. Cultures cultivate the hearts, the minds, and the embodied actions of their current and future members. They convey explicit beliefs through teaching and ritual but at a more subtle level, they convey a way of being in the world that makes some beliefs more plausible than others. Let's read it again, and we'll, we'll substitute Catholic culture for culture. Okay, let's try and see what, see, and then ask yourself, is there such a thing as Catholic culture in America today that's doing this? Catholic culture may be said to exist for the sake of passing on from one generation to the next, a vision of life well lived, a set of loyalties, a body of wisdom. Catholic culture cultivates the hearts, the minds, and the embodied actions of their, uh, its current and future members. Catholic culture conveys explicit beliefs through teaching and ritual, but in a more subtle level, it conveys a way of being in the world that makes some beliefs more plausible than others. Obviously, we are here today for the Institute of Catholic Culture, so we're doing something about it here, but I think this drives home how important the work of the Institute is and how important it is that we build up Catholic culture. It's not enough just to to sort of have that communication and, and communicate knowledge. There has to be a culture um, that, that supports um, our young people at these institutions. That's Joseph Pieper, <laughs> who uh, wrote the famous book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Um, he was a great Thomistic philosopher, um, and his view of culture was this, that culture is built on leisure. That's why his book is titled Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Um, then Feast and Celebration undergirds the experience of leisure. And Feast and Celebration, I wrote, uh, includes relaxation and effortlessness. Um, we've all had these moments where time seems to stand still. 
after a great meal with friends. You know, you've had a, had a glass of wine, a great meal, and you're just talking, and you're being together, and no one's looking at their phone or their watch. You're just being, okay? This is where, how culture is developed. The basis of this, however, ultimately is worship. And the support of that is sacrifice. Now, how does this work? So let me just, I can sum it up for you very quickly in relation to our, um, in, in terms of our college. So Holy Week, you saw some photos from Holy Week um, earlier. Um, and uh, the students sacrifice to get ready for Holy Week. They, they plant new flowers, they polish, um, the chalices. Um, they bake food, they clean, they get ready, they rehearse. Um, and then of course there's the preeminent sacrifice of the Mass, all right, on Easter, um, the Easter Vigil. And that is of course worship, that's the, that's the soul of worship. From that flows this great feast. Um, you walk into our, our dining room at the college um, after the vigil and there are tables and tables of food and drink. And that leads to all kinds of things. It leads to music, it leads to speeches, it leads to gifts. People are bringing out gift baskets in this gift. Here's a gift for Father for all his hard work. Here's a gift for the Dean of Women. And people are giving. And people, people create culture in this context. Um, but no one's looking at their watches or their phones. There's a kind of leisure that permeates all of this. And imagine this happening year after year after year for decades, multiple times in the year. This is how the church created Catholic culture, was through this very simple formula. And you may say, I don't, I don't, work, at a, I don't go work at a Catholic college, how do I do this? I would encourage you to think about how you spend Sundays. Make Sundays a special time where you worship, maybe you have to sacrifice in some ways to do this, but you worship, have a large family meal, and then put away the technology, put away the distractions, let there be true leisure there, and then see what comes from it. And of course, you can do this on feast days as well throughout the week insofar as it's possible. So, if our Catholic colleges are going to be effective in forming students that I described at the very beginning of this, and if we're going to truly understand what it means to be human um, and build our colleges and universities from that knowledge, um, we have to remember some basic things. That we are created for wonder and with desire to know. We're created to worship. We're created for virtuous communion and love, and we're created for the creation of culture. We have to get the man right, and this applies to our families as well as our schools, um, and that's, that's gonna be the way, the way we reorient things. I have great hope. I, get, I have the great privilege of working with students every day um, that are vibrant Catholics who are gonna go out and they're gonna change their worlds, and they're doing that um, in large part because they are we're taking seriously who they are as created beings. So I would ask you to keep us in your prayers, and if you're in New England, come visit us. And I want to say thank you again um, to the Institute and Patrick and the Carl Newman Society for having me here today. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.